0: Welcome to Racing Heart, a brand new podcast presented by the National Centre for Sports Cardiology, which is a joint initiative between the Baker Institute, St. Vincent's Hospital and the St. Vincent's Institute. The goal of this podcast is to delve deeper into the workings of an athlete's most important tool, their heart. To kick things off, we've got an episode with the founding partners of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology, Associate Professor David Pryor, Dr. Maria Brosnan and Dr. Andre Le Gersh to talk about the topic of sudden cardiac death throughout the episode we address what it is the challenges that cardiologists face and where the research has led them so far if you do enjoy this podcast please share it with a friend let us know what you think about it on social media by searching national center for sports cardiology or racing heart and we hope you enjoy the episode before we get started I'd just like to clarify that the views expressed in this podcast are designed to be general in nature and should not be used as a substitute for personalised medical assessment. If you do have any symptoms or concerns, please contact your doctor. Well, welcome Maria, Andre and David to the podcast. We're here uh, to talk about sudden cardiac death, but first we might just get Andre to touch on, we're here as part of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology. Can you just run us through what it is, how it came about?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alex. So so um, Maria Brosnan, uh, David Pryor and I have sort of had a long interest in sports cardiology and like many centres in the world, that's come out of a, 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 an interest in in, um, in sport and in cardiology that kind of blended and, and, and has become a bit of a self-taught thing, but... Um, we realised that that across um, myself and, and Maria doing PhDs and doing really extensive research and, and supervised by David that we had um, expertise that was quite unique in Australia and in some ways unique uh, around the world. And, and, you know, putting that together, we felt that we could provide benefit to the wider community with the National Centre for Sports cardiology having really three remits one being clinical care so patients can come to us with um, uh, athletes and people interested in in participating in exercise and sport can come to us with symptoms um, that can be evaluated here with with really some specific expertise also we continue to do uh, very involved research um, in in athletes, other areas as well, but with a real focus on on exercise and the effect on the heart. And then, lastly, education—you know—both to our colleagues and to the wider community about the effect of exercise on the heart and and um, and what what that can mean. Both in terms of the massive health benefits, but also sometimes, uh, thankfully, uncommonly, in terms of some of the problems that that can develop um, in that space between exercise and and heart conditions. So, so you know, clinical care, research, and education are, are the remits of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology. That's a collaboration between St. St. Vincent's Hospital here in Melbourne, St. Vincent's Institute, which is an on-site research um, institute, and and the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute just a little bit across town. Um, and we and we basically are, have, the, have the flexibility between all of those places to do some of the clinical care, um, well, predominantly here at St Vincent's. Some of the very specialised research equipment is at the Baker and some of the sort of more basic science med- models are at St Vincent's Institute. So really between the three, we think we've got everything pretty much covered. Mm.
0: Sudden cardiac death, Maria, is... One of these aspects that falls under this bigger banner that you guys are, that Andre just talked about. It's a horrific event that unfortunately gets picked up by the media a fair bit because of its nature. Can you just, first of all, define what it actually is for us?
2: Sure. Um, So, sudden cardiac death is basically sudden, unexpected death um, due to loss of heart function. So, your heart stops or arrests. So, sometimes it's referred to as sudden cardiac arrest. Um, And then we refer to sports-related sudden cardiac death, and that's generally speaking that sort of event that occurs within the context of exercising or very soon after. Um, It does pick up a lot of media attention, and that doesn't necessarily reflect the fact that it happens commonly. Um, We think the prevalence is probably around something between 1 in 50,000 athletes per year to 1 in 100,000 athletes per year. Numbers which aren't too dissimilar to the rates of sudden death in the general population of that younger age group, so those under the age of 35. Mm. Sudden cardiac death becomes more common as you get older because of the higher prevalence of coronary artery disease. Mm. So when we sort of talk about sudden cardiac death in the young, generally speaking, the causes in that age group are quite different to the older population. Um, So often they're inherited disorders of the heart muscle or of the um, sort of electrical wiring of the heart. Also, a large proportion of those who do suffer a sudden cardiac death, we can't identify a cause, and so that's another sort of um, focus of of our research.
0: The, you mentioned athletes there, young athletes, which is another part of why the media picks up on it so much. It's a, a terrifying incident that occurs. What What's the relationship between
2: athletes, the general public, and what you guys do for your screening? So... Well if I first go to the second part of that question the general for the general public there are no screening recommendations and really we don't have a test that really is appropriate to predict those people who might suffer sudden cardiac death unless they already have a known diagnosis or have a known family history of something that could lead to premature sudden cardiac death in the sporting population in Australia there are again no mandatory guidelines but uh, European guidelines suggest that all competitive athletes should be screened with a history, so asking if there's you know any family history, if they've had any symptoms, physical examination, so listening to their heart for murmurs and so forth, and then doing a 12-lead ECG, which is sort of a, a great sort of point of interest in sports cardiology research.
1: So, I mean, one of the things that Maria is very nicely explaining there is, that is screening is this process to try to pick up a very rare condition so people use the analogy of needle in a haystack i mean you're you're looking using fairly um non-specific tools for these risks of of a rare event and so things like the family history mean that all of a sudden the statistics change so if if a number of people in the family have have um, collapsed or unexplained lost consciousness or have died at an early age then all of a sudden the statistics go from sort of around 1 in 50, 1 in 100,000 to perhaps down to around 1 in 1,000 just because the chances that they could have a condition is much higher. So that's where the term screening changes a little bit because if we were told that you know a number of people in the family had died suddenly, then it would be a standard of care to evaluate that further. The, the issue that comes up is with that needle in a haystack analogy is if you just use these tools in the general population or in athletes just how well these can work and that's really what you know you spent four years uh studying
2: yeah yeah it's not Yeah, i think the word blunt is a a good is a good word to use when you're talking about the tools that we use for screening i think there's probably an overestimation by you know, the general public and anyone who reads about it, that, that we actually have these exacting mechanisms to, to pick up um, people who are at risk of sudden death before anything happens. Because the reality is, in the majority of cases, we wouldn't have pick, picked them up even with screening.
0: Mm. So what is the process at the moment?
2: So at the moment in Australia, as I said, it's not mandatory for athletes to be screened, but a lot of organisations have taken it upon themselves to recommend it, or in some cases even sort of enforce it on the athletes. So a lot of the state sporting institutes are routinely screening their athletes. Um, for sports, such as the one that you used to be involved in, so the International Cycling Union mandates screening every year for athletes, and that's actually a little bit more thorough than what a lot of organisations do, in that it also involves an ultrasound or a of the heart. And that's the case for other sporting organisations like FIFA has a similar, a similar screening guideline. Largely, though, as I said, the, the screening process is a history, a physical examination and a 12-lead ECG. Mm-hmm. And if any of those things are abnormal, then that leads to further investigation. Uh, and from our experience, so the ECG, the way you know, we interpret the ECG has to be done in the context of knowing that the person is an athlete because being an athlete changes the way your ECG looks significantly. So sort of interpretation guidelines have been developed um, and even using those new guidelines, around about 5% of athletes have to undergo further investigation on the basis of that test.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about how that's evolved? You've been in this uh, industry for a while now, you've done a PhD on it, you've done work at St Vincent's here. How has that screening process evolved and what what have you, yourself and cardiologists, learnt throughout that time?
2: The sort of screening, the only thing that's really changed in terms of the process is is that it's becoming more widely implemented. So more and more organisations are starting to think that this is a useful thing to do. The actual process hasn't changed a whole lot um, other than the fact that, as I said, we now have sort of ECG interpretation guidelines for athletes that have been modified and sort of tweaked to reduce the number of people who have to undergo further investigation unnecessarily. Um, so there hasn't... And in terms of sort of follow-up investigations, obviously medicine is growing slowly and so there are new things like, a, you know, bigger genetic panels that we look at when we get to that point that have changed. But to be honest, in the, in the sort of, I don't know, seven years I've been doing this sort of thing, not a whole lot has changed.
3: Yeah. Having said that, Maria, you know, you don't like to... Pat yourself on the back, but you know, included in the you know the work that, that you've done. I mean, I think I think that that change in interpretation of ECGs really over the last ten to fifteen years has made it you know more accurate in terms more in terms of understanding some of the ECG changes we see in athletes that people were getting unnecessary testing uh, for, and so I think that there's certainly been improvement in that mm. regard.
1: And one of, one of the things that that really very specifically came from your work, Maria, was uh, was that the new guidelines um, talk about and reflect that not all athletes are the same, mm. um, and and perhaps you could describe. But the study you did comparing comparing endurance athletes, uh, you know, like uh, cyclists or runners or triathletes, versus team based soccer, or rugby, football type sports, and saw sort of very different um, ECGs.
2: Yeah, look, absolutely. So when, when I started my PhD, most of the data on um, ECG screening results in athletes were based on big cohorts of sub-elite, largely football players, so 16-year-old boys, who are obviously very different to 20-year-old endurance, you know, professional cyclists. And so the people in Australia who needed to have their ECGs done were mostly elite athletes with a very large proportion of endurance athletes. And it became pretty quickly apparent that Endurance athletes are very different beasts. We know that already to, to non-endurance athletes, but that's reflected in the ECG. So we saw a really large proportion of endurance athletes who had ECGs, which even by current definition would be considered abnormal. And these changes were very different to those of the non-endurance athletes. So if you took, say, for instance, 100 footy players, you could expect that most of those ECGs would be pretty unremarkable, but about 30% of your rollers or cyclists would have ECGs that needed further follow-up. Um, Then some of the research that looked at why that might be in terms of the way the heart's adapted to exercise. Um, We know that the heart gets really big in endurance athletes, um, so all four chambers dilate. But what we then realise is that, you know, your heart grows within the constraints of your, your thorax, so it has to shift where it sits. It tends to sort of shift around underneath your armpit. And so when we do an ECG, we're just sticking on standard leads and expecting it to look the same. But when your heart's moved under the leads, it looks different. So that was sort of one neat explanation that came out of the the PhD. But nevertheless, we're often still left with endurance athletes who have really profound remodelling, quite a bizarre-looking ECG, no symptoms, no family history, but really who we need to follow up quite carefully because we're not really certain yet what some of these really profound adaptations mean in the long term.
1: So in a, in, in a nutshell as well, that means that if, if as an endurance athlete, um, say the UCI says that you need to have an ECG screening and you go to your local pathology company, get an ECG done, and it's reported by someone who doesn't know that you're an endurance athlete, there's about a one in five chance that they will say this is a grossly abnormal ECG that could be um, confused for one of the conditions that causes sudden death. And so there's a real sort of nuance between uh, having a good knowledge of what an endurance athlete's ECG is versus um, versus these cardiomyopathies. It, there's, there's a little subspecialty, not suggesting that the three of us are particularly brilliant in any way, but when you take a real interest in a very small area, um, it, it, it's really critical because your general cardiologist, and particularly if they don't have the information, um, we'll get that wrong and, and that can cause major problems because the athlete all of a sudden is getting called up and saying there's a major problem here and stop what you're doing and where in fact more often than not that's
0: a false alarm. Mm. I know we were talking about Italy and the entirety of the country where they screen every man and woman that does a, any kind of endurance event to like you talked about Australia not having much in place besides for the elite athlete programs is there somewhere in the world that's nailed it or has the best results has
2: the best accuracy the most effective testing so i would say that any country that doesn't screen has probably nailed it <laughs> <laughs> i mean as I, which I, is interesting I, I can't you know i, I you know I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot here, (laughs) making myself seem useless. But um, look, we don't have a perfect screening tool. It's as simple as that. I think probably, and and even in Australia, probably what we don't do well enough in the general population is people in whom we know have a family history. We should be weeding those people out and making sure we investigate. If we could just do that properly, we'd be winning. Um, Whereas it sort of doesn't really seem to make any sense to take the healthiest proportion of the population and subject them to screening Uh, so i'm not you know i I don't think i disagree with italy's policy altogether um, and i don't think they've still to this day haven't provided any good evidence that it actually saved lives but it has created an industry Um.
3: yeah i mean i think um that that we would all love to believe that we are so good that we can pick you know whoever's going to have a problem in advance from their ecg or from talking to them but um, i think you know it's not true and i think you know maria has captured it really nicely um, but bringing what andre said back in you know i think that if people are going to screen i think it's really important that they get it done by someone who actually understands athletes and understands the type of athletes being tested because they're going to know what to expect on an ecg and and you know when they might be alarmed, or when they go, "gee, this is just what you see in an athlete." So, if you're going to do it, I think you have to do it with people who understand athletes. Yeah.
2: yeah. The other, th- just to add to that, I absolutely agree, and it's not like we don't we don't screen. There are obviously a lot of sporting organisations who still require it to be done, and so we do get involved in that. Um, so, I think that's an important point. And I was just going to say something else. Doesn't matter. I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it's going to be done, it should be done well. Yeah. Oh, that was the other thing I was going to say. Done and done well, but also done with informed consent. So what we see a lot of is athletes just lining up like little lambs and not understanding what the potential outcomes might be. Um, And so I think sporting organisations need to take some form of responsibility if they are going to screen, of letting athletes know what, you know, if, if we find something abnormal that could potentially impact your career... And so I think there should be the opportunity to opt out, not because people know there's a family history and they're just being blase, but I, th- I think there needs to be better informed consent and some sporting organisations have started to do that.
1: People listening might be thinking, "Yo, what's it matter An ECG is... is I haven't said that, but it costs about $40. It takes 10 seconds for the strip and it's just some, some little uh, dots put on your chest. It, it's completely harmless and, and painless. Uh, What's the problem with it? The problem that we're um, insinuating but haven't, haven't sort of fully described is that every test we do has a small chance of finding something that needs further testing. And we talk about this concept of diagnostic creep. So we do an ECG and it's not quite normal. So we do an echo and then that raises some questions that may or may not even be related to the ECG. And then before you know it, we're doing uh, an angiogram or an MRI scan. uh, And and each of those tests can lead to things that do have side effects, both in terms of the side effects of the test, like an angiogram, but um, which involves, you know, putting catheters in the body, Uh, but also side effects psychologically and the impact of being told that there may or may not be something wrong. And ultimately, um, some athletes might be excluded from sport as a result of our findings. And that can be a good thing. I mean, that is the aim of screening, is that we identify the person who is at, you know, greatly increased risk of something bad and then taking them out of sport. But we, we are so far from getting that perfect that, that most estimates are that we'd have to exclude somewhere around, you know, 3,000 or more athletes to, to save the one who's going to have a cardiac arrest. And also saving a patient with, with a cardiac problem is, is more complex than, than just stopping them from sport. So, and there's even a bit of a shift toward being more... Um, permissive in terms of doing sport so it's it's a very complex area um and and again i think it does highlight especially when there are or you know there's sporting bodies mandating this we're, we're singing our own tune a little bit but being being immersed in this area is really quite helpful in terms of being able to advise athletes and follow the process
0: through mm. David symptoms another Part of this, and what we can see, And we know Maria was talking about the the family history and the effect that that takes on it. Like that's amazing numbers from a reduction of people perspective. Throughout your career treating people, what what are, what symptoms do patients traditionally display?
3: Um, so, in terms of trying to identify people who are at risk of of some sort of event like sudden cardiac death. Um, Having symptoms is something that, you know, makes us prick up our ears and, and we obviously look carefully at those. So if we think about it, you know, um, people who have had particularly episodes where they might pass out, you know, an unexplained episode of them passing out, particularly if it's during exercise, um, is something that makes us think, Gee, is there something going on here um, that might pose a risk to this person? Um Sometimes people can have palpitations, so that's a, a sort of an awareness of your heart um, racing, um, that you know for no apparent reason. You know, obviously, if you're out there exercising at your maximum, you know your heart's going to tend to tend to race. But um, you know, if you're not doing anything that you would expect it to be going that fast, then that's that's a concerning finding. Or if someone gets a very fast heart rate or, uh, or a heart rate that's faster than they would expect and they feel dizzy or unwell with it, then, again, those are the sorts of symptoms that would make us have some concern and think that something needs to be looked into. Um, one of the challenges, though, is that, you know, palpitations and awareness of your heart beating or missing beats is not that uncommon a symptom in normal people um, or in athletes who are not at risk of sudden cardiac death so whilst it focuses us a little bit more on looking harder in in those sort of cases um it's it doesn't one doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem with the risk of sudden cardiac death um, but but also you know that that having some palpitations is not an uncommon symptom but it's a, often a common symptom I think that all of us get asked to see athletes uh, about um, but a, again so I think that then we move from from a situation of looking at well people where the the rate of events is is very very low to a situation where the rate of events may still be low but but it's more common, and this is a group, I guess, where we are more likely to find something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, getting that information from the athlete about what their symptoms are and when they happen and what they feel like is really important from our point of view. It, it will often determine... Um, how we might proceed in trying to evaluate that further, um, and and so that you know we spend often quite a lot of time talking to people to find out some of the specifics about those symptoms.
0: So you take these symptoms, um, where where do you where do you take them from that point? So they come to see you. Yep. They have symptom X Y Z. Where to after
3: that? So the the. I guess the the first sort of branch point, if you like, is we're trying to work out is this a serious problem or not. Um, Often if someone's heart structure or function is abnormal, then um, those symptoms have the potential to be, you know, a problem more likely than if the heart looks entirely normal in its structure and function. So that, you know, we'll often go and, and look at that. But, you know, again, our first step, even in someone with symptoms, is often looking at the ECG. There might be something on that ECG that that does look abnormal, which will prompt us to to look at different aspects of heart function. As I said, the structure and the function of the heart is really important because some of those conditions that that will cause sudden cardiac death can make the heart look abnormal. Either the heart muscle can be very thick, um, the heart can be very enlarged, and we might come back to the challenges of that, Um, one chamber of the heart might be very enlarged, So those are, or there might be a valve problem. So um, looking at the function of the heart is important, and, and usually our first step there is a cardiac ultrasound, which is also known as an echocardiogram, something that takes 40 minutes, 45 minutes, um, involves um, you know, essentially using an ultrasound probe and getting pictures of how the heart's working in real time. And so that can be a very useful test from our point of view. Um, someone who is having you know, something that we might cons- you know, be concerned about, some heart rhythm disturbance, will then want to try and capture that rhythm disturbance because that, that is one of the most useful things we can do. Um, and so people might may get something called a, a halter monitor, which is essentially uh, a little device that's worn that records every heartbeat for 24 hours. Um, and if they have an episode of their symptoms during that, they can mark where in time that is and we can correlate the ECG at that time with how they're feeling. The challenge with that is that you've got a 24-hour window and often these symptoms might happen once every few weeks, once in a blue moon and so that's a bit of a challenge. Um, So there you know, if, if we are not successful and we remain concerned, then sometimes there are other ways of doing that. And, and I have to say one of the successes I've had with quite a number of athletes in working out what's going on is you can actually um, buy little devices uh, that will just record an e- a brief ECG. Um, you, you can you know, buy a device over the internet. Um, it syncs up with your phone. And if you have your symptoms, you make a little 30-second recording, which you can then email... To the doctor to have a look at. So I've had a couple of people who've had, who've you know invested the money in buying one of those because you know sometimes it's it's worth spending that money rather than have five halters and three echoes and take mm. all that time off work. Uh, and that's been a really useful test. Um, in occasionally people might have a little implanted device. That's that's a thing about the size of a little USB stick called an implantable loop recorder that goes under the skin. Um, and it can record heart rhythm disturbances. So, you know, we're going from less invasive to more invasive depending on whether we identify the problem, you know, if we remain concerned. Um, So we've looked at the structure of the heart, we've looked at the heart rhythm. The other thing about a lot of these symptoms and and things to do with exercise is they happen with exercise. Um, And so that often we will do some sort of stress testing to try and provoke... Um, the symptoms or rhythm disturbance or something like that. Uh, And so that might involve uh, exercising on a treadmill or a a bike um, and either looking at what the ECG does during that test. Um, And so if someone has a particular um, form of exercise or a particular thing that provokes their symptoms, sometimes we'll try and um, reproduce that. And I remember Andre had a case where it was like when someone was really sprinting flat out. And so we did a standard protocol, nothing. Uh, and then Andre sort of tried to, to reproduce that sprinting and saw a heart rhythm disturbance, which you know, sort of answered the important question there. Um, sometimes we will add um, uh, other forms of testing with the, with the exercise and the ECG. So sometimes we can do an ultrasound During or after the exercise to look at whether the heart responds normally to exercise. Um, Andres developed a technique uh, which is more a research tool currently, but but uh, using getting people to exercise in an MRI scanner and that might offer some Mm. some advantages as well. So, adding exercise to the other things that we do, real time can be very helpful. See, once
0: they kind of something comes up incorrectly the ECG point of view then they go to the ultrasound step number two step number three the halter Mm. at that phase if you still are not 100% sure like Andre touched on before with the psychological effect of telling someone that something might be wrong yeah how do you approach that phase of it
3: yeah look so sometimes you know it's important I think for us to integrate all the bits of information that we're getting you know how concerning are the symptoms that the athletes having You know, are they – how likely do we think that they reflect an underlying problem? How abnormal or normal is – you know, sometimes people have a normal ECG, but they still have the symptoms, so you'll do some form of stress testing. You know, if you have a plumb normal-looking resting ECG, no arrhythmia is detected on a 24-hour monitor during a stress test and your heart looks structurally normal – then your chance of, of there being a serious problem that could put you at risk of sudden cardiac death is really very low. It's not zero, but it's very low. And so occasionally you kind of got to call time on tests. You know, you can do tests till the cows come home. But the reality of whether you're going to find something that that is helpful to this athlete or that, that prevents an event, you know, becomes very low. And so... Um, it's a matter of us integrating all that information that we get from the athlete to try and make that decision. I don't know what the opinion over here is. Uh,
1: absolutely. absolutely. I mean, there's there's kind of three outcomes when people go through this process. One is that we find something wrong um, and, and can you know, be very specific with the treatment. Much more commonly, we get a whole bunch of negative tests, which you would think, and often the patient's left, ah, oh, they just can't find it. But what is also really important is what David just pointed out, is that the more negative tests we find, and when we can be quite specific with the symptoms and we know what possibilities we're looking at, if if everything's normal, then the chances of something being wrong are, are really very, very low. So the tests are useful both ways, positive or negative. Sometimes we're left with the situation where, where the symptoms are, are really suggestive and we're still concerned and we're not finding anything with the tests. And that's where things like the loop recorder come in, where we're putting things under the skin so that we can look across time. But we... And again, then with that, if that's negative, then it's extremely helpful. And if it's positive, it's helpful. So um, it it's... W- w- the, the key is and the difference between the screening and symptoms is screening we kind of uh, uh, are looking for something that's almost almost hypothetical whereas once someone comes in with symptoms we're really traveling down a path of trying to sort out whether that's a problem or not and give very specific information it's a much more sort of cost effective and worthwhile and and as a doctor much more satisfying sort of process
2: Mm.
0: andre maria talked about um, the different levels before on finding results, what would quantify treatment?
1: So when we're talking about sudden cardiac death, there's really, um, in a way, sort of three main treatments that are established at the moment if we find a condition where we think the person's at, at risk of dying suddenly. And as Maria touched upon, the first stage of that is trying to work out in the spectrum of risk whether someone is low, medium or high risk and, and what we do um, depends on, on, on that. And it really is a sort of super-specialised area and differs between every condition. Um, and, and the difficulty is that people who are at low risk is certainly not no risk and it can be difficult explaining to those people that there's actually not much that we can do to modify their risk um, but, you know, that, that there is this possibility. That's in some ways one of the more difficult conversations and situations we find ourselves in. Whereas as we get into the moderate and high risk for different conditions, then we have the options of, of um, medications and then specialised sort of devices that can cause a shock to put the heart back into a normal rhythm if the patient has a cardiac arrest. In general, medications are quite ineffective. They can help a little bit with symptoms. And so, it often, for a lot of these conditions, comes down to whether the patient should have a defibrillator or not. And then, specific to this sports cardiology area, is recommendations in terms of exercise. Because exercise kind of has two potential roles. One is that exercise can be what we call a trigger. So, um, if someone, you know, suddenly does does intense exercise, then that is a high risk time for the heart to go into to to have funny rhythm problems. There's also the issue of exercise that in some heart conditions, exercise can make the condition worse. In other conditions it can exercise can make the condition better. So and and one of the real transitions over the last five, ten years, and I think is going to become even more so in the future is that we're learning to um, more specifically separate out some of these conditions. And sometimes that requires genetic testing. So we know that some uh, conditions with some genetic mutations react very badly with exercise and some do better. So the era of personalised medicine, which is a term that we're using in all sorts of sort of specialties in medicine, but it's very apt in sports cardiology because we can see patients with with some heart weakness or changes in heart structure, do the genetic testing and say, you know, given that genetic test, we would be strongly recommending that you cut back on your exercise and stop competition because exercise will make your heart worse. Mm. Other situations where we do genetic testing and say, exercise here would be beneficial or, or you know have have minimal impact and and then come up sometimes with some quite specific recommendations in terms of what type of exercise would be helpful but it, it really is a, a you know increasingly a matter of working out very specifically what the condition is and sometimes even what the genetic mutation is before we work out whether they need um, a defibrillator and what type of exercise recommendations we give
0: mm. Because I imagine that conversation for between you guys and a, a budding athlete, it is when their sport is really everything to them at that, that point in their life. Does the genetic testing give you a hard and fast, yep, this is what I need to do? Or is it a little bit, gr- not grey, but not as defined like um, some of the other tests that we we're talking about? So Maria might want to speak to that because we had a, a, a patient recently
1: that um, that almost you know that really well addresses that question.
2: Mm. So the the answer to the question just off the bat is that yes, that specific information can give you uh, can lead to sort of specific uh, recommendations for that athlete. Um, and I guess this case really does speak to that point. So we had a uh, an athlete recently who who had a sudden cardiac arrest. He, he di- essentially died, he had VF and was unconscious, but was luckily in a place where there was a defibrillator and fortunately two doctors. And so um, he was very quickly successfully resuscitated. He then went on to have a full barrage of investigations, um, all of which were normal. So he'd, had, he'd actually been screened before. Um, his resting ECG was normal. Um, the ultrasound or echocardiogram of his heart was normal. Uh, he had an MRI, which was normal. Um, he uh, was not monitored to have any further rhythm problems after the arrest. So he got sent home with a... He was overseas. He got sent home with a defibrillator in situ, which was very appropriate. But then we sort of went down the path of further investigation, so looked at the family, because we're still thinking this might be something that's latent in him or might have already been... Sort of, may have developed in older family members. Family screening was normal. Uh, he had... An electrophysiology study which tries to sort of induce these arrhythmias. Uh, that was normal, nothing was seen. And so by this point in time, we're thinking maybe this was just a one-off sort of what we call idiopathic. Um, but in the meantime, it had some genetic testing. Um, and those results came back and were very consistent with a condition. Uh, a, 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 that's associated with rhythm problems or ARBC, but with a specific genetic mutation that we know is particularly high risk for rhythm problems, even in the absence of there being an obvious problem with the heart muscle, even when you look at it very closely with echo and MRI. And so we went from a conversation where you've got an elite athlete who's saying, unless you can give me a diagnosis, I'm going to carry on to understanding that this condition that he has which had been proven by his genetics meant that if he continued he may end up in real strife um, and the condition may well progress and shorten his lifespan and so with that information you know we've taken an athlete who was quite adamant that he was going to continue to sort of stepping back and saying ah actually I'd rather live um, and I understand the implications so in that particular case the genetic information was incredibly useful Um, and probably saved his life. Mm-hmm.
3: A, from a screening perspective, Dave, do you have anything to add? No, I, I was actually gonna add something else though, having you know, previously resuscitated two cyclists in the middle of the road yeah. uh, who've had cardiac arrests. Um, one of the things M- Maria mentioned before was that you know, this athlete had a cardiac arrest and was resuscitated because mm-hmm. there was some people with some knowledge about resuscitation. Mm-hmm. And there was a defibrillator available. And and I think, you know, that all questions of screening aside, these are two really important things in our community, that if if you have someone who knows basic resuscitation, you know, you can keep someone alive until the ambulance gets there. And having a defibrillator available is really important. You know, I think we should be encouraging sporting organisations to have defibrillators and someone that knows how to use them because you know, we we know that kind of thing can be life-saving. So I've sort of taken us off topic a little bit, but I think this kind of well, thing is really important. And
2: I, I think it's probably really useful to include that in this conversation, because I think in terms of um, saving lives, there's a lot more evidence for early resuscitation and the presence of defibrillators than there is for ECG screening. So that probably, you know, I guess it's a slightly separate topic, but If you're wondering who's... Actually, I should have answered your question differently earlier. You said, has any country nailed it? I think it's Denmark who've introduced um, training in CPR and defibrillation in primary schools. And there's been a significant improvement in survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without screening the population, just teaching people what to do if they see see someone keel over.
3: And it saves the athletes, their relatives, the spectators.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Everyone's a winner.
0: Yeah.
1: I was just down teaching the nippers at the uh, surf lifesaving club about uh, about CPR and and basic resuscitation and and I would love to see a system which we don't have in Australia at the moment, which is that um, you know it's mandatory for school kids to learn CPR. It's a very uh, basic and important skill, and I'd prefer my kids to be able to do that than say sing the national anthem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that that's another point where where's it where's it going Is it is it the treatment path is it the symptoms path is it the screening path is it the pre- preventative path where do you guys see i guess more of an open question where do you guys see it heading in terms from a long-term point of view like hitting that utopia um but also in the short term what what's the most effective method well, I think
2: we're a long way from utopia. but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but I get, and, and I don't think screening is going to go away. I think that's pretty apparent. It would take, I just can't imagine, a world where everyone sort of reneges and stops doing what they've been doing for many years now, sort of since the 80s. And if anything, it seems to be becoming more common. And it's not, having said that I, I don't think it saves lives, it still gives us... Our understanding of athletes' heart has developed as a consequence of having to screen these people. So from our perspective, it's been quite useful in that regard. So we now have a better concept of what's normal and abnormal, both in physiology and disease. Um, So hopefully we continue to get... If people use their screening data for good instead of evil, maybe we'd have even better understanding of some of these conditions. I think there has been a a small sort of groundswell in terms of encouraging um, sporting organisations and and stadiums to have defibrillators. That's not sort of state nor national policy yet, but um, there are a lot of sensible people around who've been impacted by sudden death who have just gone ahead and done it because these devices are getting really cheap now, sort of $1,500 for an effective automated device. So hopefully we, we start to see more of that. And I think if you started at ground level with education, that's probably going to be more useful than than um, screening, not just education in terms of resuscitation, mm-hmm. but also education in terms of what w- w- what to be concerned about. So a lot of these people that we see who do have catastrophic events have had symptoms before that they've discounted or know that there's a family history that they've discounted. So just going back to basics and doing those things well would mm-hmm. probably be... Even closer to utopia.
0: Yeah. You mentioned using data for good be bad. What's that mean?
2: Well, to me, that means um, really using the data to create the message you want it to create to create an industry, which is what we've seen happen in Europe quite a bit, whereas we've used our data to try to answer questions.
3: And, and some of that question really is about, you know, the, the problem at present with screening is that our tests are not you know, 100% accurate. We'd love them to be, but they aren't. And so I think you know, as we understand more about athletes and their hearts through research, the aim of that is really to try and you know, improve the accuracy of our, our testing and so that we won't be quite so sceptical about, you know, about screening as such you know, because the problem with it is that the tests aren't perfect. So we really want to you know improve the accuracy of the testing so that we know when we do a test and we identify something we understand what it means and we understand better what the implication is and I think that's part of what you know drives us to continue researching this area.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going to put my research hat on and say cuz if we take a step back I mean uh, I think um, Maria very correctly, and, and as a scientist, we, we are we are born cynics, and we question our data, and we question the data of uh, we question what we're doing all the time. But in another way, the amount that we have learnt about. About sudden cardiac death, about athletes' heart, and about the interaction between the two over the last 20 years has been really quite breathtaking. And some of that has, has actually come out of screening. You know, because screening involves looking at, at you know thousands and across the world hundreds of thousands uh, of, of athletes, we've learned And we probably understand the athlete's ECG better than the normal person's ECG. It's extraordinary how much research has been done about it. Similarly, echocardiography, MRI, we've really got a much, much more solid picture than we did twenty years ago, and that's going to advance. And as I said before, about becoming able to, to put the gene with with um, the effect of exercise and the outcomes, that's something that's really very recent and will advance. So I just the the impact that research has had on this area is is really substantial. And um, for people who, for the general public who who kind of wonder why we do research, as researchers we're very biased, but. You know that if you want your medical treatment in 2020 to be exactly the same for the next 50 years then then we stop research but the we're used to an environment where where everything we do is changing you know all the time and that in that happens only because of
0: research Mm. marie if you had a unlimited budget i can write you the biggest check in the world and you can put it to this one area to research, study, nail, which would have the biggest effect on sudden cardiac death, where would you put it?
2: I think probably if we had a better understanding of some of the causes of sudden death, that would be a good start. And I think I alluded to this earlier. A third or more of people who suffer sudden cardiac death, even after an autopsy, we don't come up with an answer as to what caused it. Um, We just know that their heart stops suddenly without explanation. And there are, uh, you know, there's a lot of research into this area, and it seems, again, like perhaps genetic information is, well, is very helpful and is becoming more helpful. And So there's a, a, an Australian group out of Chris M. Siren's lab in Sydney who are working very much on this and have recently shown that if you take those 30% of people who die and we don't have a dire sudden cardiac death and we don't have an explanation and do a full genetic panel, in about a third of those people you'll come up with an answer. Um, so you'll find a, a genetic cause, which obviously has a huge amount of relevance for the rest of the family, given that these conditions run in families. So that would be one area: so understanding what things are that are causing sudden death that we haven't yet understood. And then I think again, the other one really is: is you know, we can't predict we can't predict these cases all the time. So we know that you know early defibrillation and early resuscitation works and is really effective. So I think better education in regards to that would be key. Mm.
0: David, you mentioned a little bit about tech before. Is that advancing? Is that developing? Um,
3: I, well, I think that our, um, you know, imaging, testing, um, equipment and strategies, that they're all always advancing. It, it tends to be a sort of, you know, iterative process rather than, than leaps and bounds. Uh, and I think, you know, they, that's all going to help fill in the picture, you know, um, because, you know, listening to Maria, you know, the question that comes up to me is, why not, Why don't we forget the screening? We'll just do the genetics. And I think part of that is the genetics doesn't give us all the information and we, we really do need um, information from a sort of broad range of sources. Um, but but particularly, you know, understanding more about um, the structure of the heart and, you know, differentiating the athlete's heart from the heart that's going to have a rhythm disturbance, so I think is important. And if, and if we think about... You know, when when people started looking at athletes' hearts 40 years ago, all they were using was heart ultrasound, a pretty simple heart ultrasound. And that heart ultrasound technology has improved a lot, Um, but it didn't give us all the answers. And then MRI of the heart has come along, and that's provided us with additional information. And so I think that those things are going to continue to improve. And, And as people make a step in that technology, we we find sometimes a difference we didn't expect to see that will potentially help us in the future. So I think we're going to see that as part of the picture as well.
1: And there's some pretty novel tech ideas, Uh, simple things like apps that tell you if someone has a cardiac arrest where the nearest defibrillator is and, and where people are who have... Who are trained in doing CPR um, through to Canadian initiatives where they fly defibrillators in with a drone that's initiated by an app, um, and and I saw a startup met with a startup company recently that had designed defibrillators that use the charge in your iPhone. So little pads that just sort of um, uh, roll out and and you put on the chest and then defibrillate with your phone, uh, and they tell me that that's not far from production and and at a very low price price point so you know i think that this space could change um quite a lot and and brings us back to the basics because you know that would highlight even more the need for people being able to do cpr and understand um when and how to to do things like defibrillate and and they they could be life-saving so i think that the the next space with tech is is exciting and then the initiatives uh, of understanding sudden death are, are increasing in australia we've got a big um, study between Victoria and New South Wales that's hope, hoping to roll out across Australia, um, called the Australian Sudden Cardiac Death uh, Registry, where we're collecting the the details and then blood samples to do genetics on on everyone who who suffers a cardiac arrest in um, Victoria and New South Wales between the age of one and 50. And that, that really promises to be world-leading in, in terms of its capture of all cases and how comprehensive the information is. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward
0: to sort of uh, quite significant advances over the next decades. What about wearables? I guess the big um, increase in the tech world over the last two years since Apple released the Apple Watch, is that playing a role? Is it useful? Everything we've talked about today is all that data
2: well, so I think a, careful si- since no. No, 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 well, since Apple, they can be really useful, but, but a, not an uncommon referral now is a self-referral, having noticed a spike in heart rate on the Apple Watch or Fitbit in the absence of any symptoms. Um, but that said, that and often you know that turns out to be nothing or just poor skin contact. However, and unfortunately, those devices to this point in time don't record a rhythm strip; they just tell you what it thinks the heart rate is. So it doesn't tell you whether it's irregular or regular. Um, If we got to a point where something like the device that David was talking about that records a rhythm strip became wearable, that would be incredibly useful. There are, we don't have easy access to them, but sort of sticky pad halters that you you can stick on and wear for days at a time that record a, a reasonable trace. So I think, Having said that sometimes we get spurious information from those devices, I, I think it's not going to be very far off before they become really, really useful because I, like David, already use that little um, smallish uh, portable ECG recording device in athletes who have symptoms. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think the
3: accuracy of the, those wearable devices, though, is improving, you know, because yes. 10 years ago when someone would come and see me and say, oh, my, my you know, heart rate monitor said my heart rate did this... More often than not, it was an artefact. You know, I used to have a heart rate monitor and when I would ride past a specific geographic location, it said my heart rate was 220. Um, And so there was obviously some interference. But I had, you know, someone come in and say, my watch when I'm exercising at high level says this happens. And I was thinking, oh, yeah. But we did the testing. She had an arrhythmia. uh, And that was very, very helpful. So I I think they're improving.
0: So to wrap things up, David, I think that point that you made, that she did have an arrhythmia. What does an athlete need to look out for? They're out there training every day. What do they need to keep tabs on and what do they need to monitor and what do they need to worry about?
3: So I, think, I guess the first point is that you take notice of something that is out of the ordinary, that's never happened to you before. You know, Normally when you run or ride, you don't have a symptom, but suddenly something's new, particularly if it's things like dizziness, palpitations chest pain those are the sorts of things i think that that people should take notice of any other ones i've missed do you think
1: maybe sometimes a sudden drop off in performance athletes notice yeah
3: so so i think i think that's the thing if if something changes particularly if it's one of those sort of symptoms then that's the time to to speak to your doctor
0: yeah and andre in terms of if you want to support help out contribute is there anything you're studying at the moment that you need athletes for? What's going on in this space?
1: So, so we would love to hear from endurance athletes. We have uh, a number of studies that that um, are going on, particularly in um, sort of healthy elite athletes, but then also um, athletes with with symptoms and particularly with electrical abnormalities. Uh, we have um, we have a study that that could be could be very suitable. Um, so we we'd. Uh, We'd be very interested to hear from from, uh, athletes who are interested in being involved in the research.
0: Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. you.